This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Today, we're talking with the Reverend Mr. John Bales, who is Library Director at Westminster Seminary, California. We're not going to talk a lot about the library, but we are going to talk about John and about his ministerial path. He has served Westminster Seminary, California since 2007, and he's been a pastor since 1990, and that's what we're going to focus on today. Hi, John, and welcome to Office Hours. Thanks for having me, Scott. What we want to talk about today is the trajectory of your ministry. You are currently attending a PCA congregation here in Escondido, but you haven't always been connected with the PCA. In fact, your ministry began in a very different place, and uh, now here you are in the PCA. You started out in the Reformed Church in America. That's correct. I have family with some Dutch background and was attending an NRCA church in the Midwest, my father is from RCA background, and so uh, I came to know Christ through the ministry in an RCA church and then went to an RCA college, so my background is in the RCA. The listener may not be completely familiar with the RCA. What is it? Where did it come from? And what does it mean to say that I was a minister in the RCA? Well, the RCA is considered the oldest Protestant denomination with a continuous ministry in America, so it's got a long history, and it goes all the way back to the old Dutch Reformed Church in the Netherlands. So it's the mother church of, you know, the other Reformed churches in some respects. So it has a long history, and whenever you have a long history, you can have a mixed background. So it's essentially Reformed in name, but over the years, it's lost that reformness. My recollection is the RCA came to North America in the very early 18th century, something like 1710. So there have been Dutch Reformed ministers in the New World since before there was a United States of America. But when the separating ministers from the Netherlands came to the New World in the middle of the 19th century, in the 1850s, they initially associated with the RCA, and then they separated. Why was that? Well, you probably would know better than me, but my recollection of it is primarily over issues of Christian school, of hymn singing versus psalm singing, and of memberships with certain societies or clubs. And particularly groups like the Freemasons, where there were religious overtones. So there was a separation then in the middle of the 19th century between uh, what became the Christian Reformed Church and the RCA, the Reformed Church in America. And as you suggested, the RCA began a trajectory already in the middle of the 19th century, if not before, of assimilating to broader trends in North American Protestant Christianity, and particularly in the 20th century— increasingly identified itself uh, not so much with American evangelicalism, which it might have done in the 19th century, but increasingly in the 20th century identified itself with American liberalism. What is the state of the RCA today, the Reformed Church in America, and, and are there some notable names that people might be able to associate with the RCA? Certainly, a lot of times when people would say, what is the RCA or who is the RCA, 
there'd be some pastors who would say, well, we're the denomination with Robert Schuller. So he was the biggest name that people would throw out. And that would have been back in the 70s and 80s when the Crystal Cathedral was huge in terms of numbers and in influence. Even predating Schuller, there was a notable name in the RCA. Norman Vincent Peale. Yeah. Right. So the whole movement of feeling good and preaching a gospel of feeling good about oneself and self-esteem has been around for a long time. All right. And so the listener may not be aware that when they're watching the Hour of Power, they're watching a Reformed Church in America congregation at worship and people exercising ministry under the authority of the Reformed Church in America. And I think it's fair to say, having visited the RCA and having visited the Crystal Cathedral and having watched Reverend Schuler on television for a number of years, that one's probably not going to hear a great deal of emphasis on the Heidelberg Catechism, on the, you know, the law as the teacher of the greatness of our sin and misery, how I'm redeemed from all my sins and misery, and how I ought to be thankful for such redemption. Those would be the three parts of the Heidelberg Catechism. So those aren't the hallmarks of Reverend Schuler's ministry, and they weren't the hallmarks of Norman Vincent Peale's ministry, right. Okay, so I, I don't want to misrepresent things, but to give people a sense of what the possibilities are. So there you have on one end that possibility, but you had other possibilities too within the RCA. It's a broad group, isn't it? Inclusive. Very broad group. And like I said before, it's very mixed. So for instance, you have churches back east in New York and New Jersey, quite a few RCA churches that would be perceived as very mainline, very liberal. And that would be also true for some of the churches in Michigan. However, what's unique is that you would also have a classes or a group of churches, even in Michigan, that we would say are trying to remain faithful to the Scriptures. But by and large, I see the RCA, I mean, it has these elements of mainline, but it also has elements of evangelical trying to be Willow Creek. So broadly evangelical, megachurch, wannabe ethos. Now, you and I both use this word mainline. I know what I mean by it. What do you mean by it? Well, when I think of mainline, I think they would not necessarily consider themselves as evangelical, that the gospel is not their central focus. They would consider other elements as very important, uh, social justice or whatever it may be. And it also, to me, comes down to the doctrine of Scripture, and that was important for me as well. What is it that makes one a mainliner relative to Scripture? It's, I believe, when it comes down to interpretation. Uh, let me give you an illustration. Back in the uh, 90s, when I was pastoring at an RCA church in Wisconsin, the RCA began to form relationships with, I think, four other mainline, we would consider mainline denominations. And so they formed relationships with them, which meant that these different denominations could exchange pulpits, pastors from these pulpits, which meant to say that a PCUSA pastor could be invited to preach at an RCA church and, and vice versa. And you don't have to look too far into these denominations to see what they believe about Scripture, that Scripture is not taken to be literally or have an historical nature to it, but it is to be interpreted however a person um, understands it to mean. It would be partly a matter of marginalizing Scripture, but also of a particular view of the nature of Scripture, right? That, well, it has words from God in it, but you'd be hard-pressed to find a mainline denomination to say that the Bible 
as the Bible is God's Word. That's correct. You can talk about all kinds of different doctrines and positions that these uh, mainline denominations hold, but really when it comes down to it, when you unpack the doctrine of Scripture, everything else seems to unfold from there, and you kind of get the picture of why certain denominations are the way they are. A certain writer I know wrote a book in which he distinguished between sideline denominations and mainline denominations. And so one of the things that we want to talk about here today is your journey from being a child of the mainline in which you came to faith. So we should recognize that, that God the Spirit used the ministry of the RCA to bring you to faith and to nurture you. And you were raised in that, you went to school, you prepared for ministry, you entered into the ministry of the RCA. So the RCA, in many ways, was your mother in the faith. Right, and I didn't really consider it a mainline growing up. I didn't really understand what that meant. So it felt like a mother church to me in that sense that I gained my faith in the RCA, and I grew up in the RCA. And as I said, I went to an RCA college that had that much of an impact upon me. But I didn't consider it necessarily mainland. I thought of it more as evangelical because at least in my home church, the gospel was preached. But as I began to serve in churches and uh, began to see what other Reformed churches were offering, I began to realize that the RCA, although confessional in some of its beliefs, only in name were they confessional. There's no sense, I think, that the idea of a confessional Reformed Church is just lost. It's probably been years and years since it really was confessional in the sense that it held to the forms of unity. In your experience as a church member, first of all, in the RCA, and then later, from 1990, a minister in the RCA, was your perception of it, not being conscious of it really being mainline, do you think that was unique, or do you think you shared that perception with a lot of other people? I think that's shared with uh, other people, but I again, I think it is something that's geographical. I think there are definitely spots in the country where they would see themselves, we're an evangelical church, we're Reformed, although we don't talk about the creeds and confessions that much, we are evangelical. That's how they would perceive themselves, whereas I said, in other places in the country, they would definitely see themselves as mainline. If you're a member of the RCA, and on Sunday morning you happen to turn on the television, and there's Bob Schuler talking about self-esteem, or if you pick up The Power of Positive Thinking by Norman Vincent Peale, and you read that, if you're in the RCA, do you think these are ministers in my denomination, and they represent an important, influential movement within my denomination, and it's completely different from what I hear on Sunday? How do people think about that? People have kind of a mixed feeling about Schuler and others in that movement, they are proud of the fact that there's actually an RCA pastor who's done so well that he's got this big name and he's got a big church on TV. They feel good about that. But at the same time, they would say, I don't really believe that. He says a lot of nice things and encouraging people, but when it comes to would they believe that or would they invite him to their church, I would say they probably wouldn't. The churches that I pastored at again, probably felt like we're proud of this guy because he's from our tradition, but at the same time, he sure doesn't preach the way our other pastor does. So this is interesting. They recognize a discontinuity between what they hear and what they think and what they believe, but there is a kind of family, tribal pride in this person who belongs to the same tribe, who's socially, outwardly successful, in a sense, in the religion business, and yet 
theologically, they wouldn't really feel much akin. Here's the thing. They're willing, however, to let him, and at some point, both of them, be in the RCA, do what they do, say what they say. And so there's a kind of live and let live attitude, which marks and has marked the RCA since at least the middle of the 19th century. And that brings us to the turning point of this discussion. And we're going to get to this when we come back. Because when we come back, I want to ask you, what was it then that caused you, having been raised in the RCA, in the mainline, which you now recognize as mainline, having seen the church as your mother, to decide, wait a minute, I can't spend the rest of my ministry in the arms of my mother. I have to leave. I have to go somewhere else. How did that happen? We will find out how that happened right after this. In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, J. Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California, where for 30 years we've been fulfilling his vision of preparing men for ministry and teaching them to be expert in the Bible. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, his gospel, and his church. Well, it didn't just happen overnight. It happened through a series of events over years. And I didn't take it lightly. For me, leaving a denomination or a church is not something that a person does on a whim. It's something that has to be based upon Scripture. The doctrine of Scripture, I think, is really the key there. Because, you know, in a church, you're going to have disagreements with individuals and people over different things, issues that you're just going to have to work through. But when it comes to issues of doctrine, and especially your view of Scripture, these are issues that are worth looking at and then actually saying, this is a legitimate reason to leave a denomination. What happened was, back in the 90s when I was serving a church in Wisconsin, and the denomination essentially forced the church to form these relationships with other mainline churches. And I say forced because I, I just think that the majority of the churches were against it, but somehow it was pushed through. And uh, we were told, you should go and, and uh, have meetings with these different denominations in different churches. And so I said, all right, let's do that. And uh, I took a group of people with me one night. We went to a meeting with other denominations of the mainline. And after the meeting, my people said to me, what on earth are we doing? Why are we in relationships with these people? And uh, so I began to draft uh, overtures to our classes and ultimately to the General Synod, working with my own consistory to say, we must cease and desist on these relationships, on these ecumenical relationships. And of course, uh, that got nowhere. For the most part, they don't even look at some of these overtures. So that was a signal to me that my desire to remain within the denomination and try to change it from within was not going to work. Other things happened then through the years. The denomination sought to remove what's called the Conscience Clause, which had been in place, I think, since the early 70s. What was that? The Conscience Clause was designed to bring some sense of peace to the denomination with respect to the women's ordination, women in office. And so when the RCA allowed women in office back in the 70s, they put this clause in the Book of Church Order which said, you cannot prohibit a woman from becoming an officer but you don't have to promote it, in essence. 
So you could be against it, but you just couldn't stop a person, a woman, from seeking office. And that allowed for a lot of peace because there were people who disagreed about the issue. But then recently they've said, you can't have any sense of conscience on these particular scriptural issues. You're either with us or you're against us. This is what I think is interesting about the mainline, because the adjective associated with the mainline in the first half of the 20th century was that they were liberal. And the definition of liberal is tolerant. And if you look at the history of the mainline in the first half of the 20th century, it isn't really a history of tolerance. One of the great classic cases, perhaps— is that of J. Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary and the founder of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, who dissented from the growing liberal majority in the PCUSA and was bounced out of the PCUSA on trumped-up charges in a kangaroo court. I think that's a fair historical judgment. It's a short historical judgment, but I think it's fair and defensible. It's hard to imagine today a minister in the mainline being bounced and defrocked, removed, for serving on an independent board of foreign missions. And so, yes, conservatives are excluded within the denomination in that sense. I mean, even though it's it's considered tolerant, there's no tolerance of conservatives. They've been essentially sidelined, if we can use that word. We've been using this word conservative, and there's another adjective that we might also use, and that would be the adjective confessional. Let's talk for a minute about the role of the confessions as a normative document within the life of a mainline denomination. Now, most of the mainline denominations, and here I'm particularly thinking of the PCUSA, the UCC, and the RCA, they all come from traditional confessions. In your experience in the RCA, how did the confession, uh, the Belgian confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort, how did they function or how did they not function? They did not primarily function within the denomination. I remember being in high school that I was probably the last class in my church that received instruction in the Heidelberg Catechism from the pastor because I'm pretty sure after that point that there was no direct teaching from the catechism. What happened in the RCA, and I think it's happened in the CRC, is that they have incorporated what they say. They've incorporated the Heidelberg Catechism in Sunday school lessons, and so it might get a quick uh, mention in a Sunday school lesson, but it's not taught primarily as a confession or a catechism in this case. In the old Dutch tradition, there were two services. In the Dutch Reformed tradition, there's a morning service, which was typically an exposition of Scripture, and not infrequently an exposition of a New Testament passage, but certainly an exposition of Scripture. And then in the afternoon or the second service or the evening service, there would be a catechism sermon, which would be exposition of Scripture, but it would be guided by the Heidelberg Catechism. In your experience, was there any catechism preaching even in conservative evangelical sections of the RCA? I don't really recall that at all, but I did myself some, and that's because it is required in the Book of Church Order. At least it was originally. This is, again, where they changed the language of the Book of Church Order. Originally, it said that you need to teach through the Heidelberg Catechism. You preach through it. Then they change it to say, well, at least you need to touch on the points of doctrine that are mentioned in the Heidelberg. And then that allowed ministers to say, oh, well, forget the Heidelberg Catechism. We're not going to use it as even a guide for preaching. We're definitely going to be preaching these subjects of theology, of doctrine in our sermons. And so effectively, the catechism was cut out of preaching. 
there's a mainline minister listening to us talk. Maybe he's beginning to have an awareness. Yeah, I guess I am in the mainline, and I I do believe the Heidelberg, or I do believe the Westminster Confession, and I guess if I look around me, a lot of my peers don't. A lot of the fellow ministers or teaching elders or even ruling elders don't necessarily believe what we confess. What would you say to someone who finds himself in that situation? I would say take a good hard look at the Scriptures. That's what it comes down to. What do you think? What do you believe about the Bible? Is it inspired? Is it infallible? And if you believe that, and if you believe that the confessions of your particular denomination are a faithful representation of scriptural teaching, then you need to get out of the main line, because it's just going to get worse and worse. All you have to do is look at the recent synods and assemblies that have taken place just in the last few years and see the direction of mainline churches, and it's just getting worse in terms of the direction where they're heading. I'm not even going to go into specifics, but all you have to do is just figure it out, look at the results, and you will see if you believe these things to be true, and you see the mainline church following the direction it's going, you have to ask yourself, do I want to be associated with this? Am I obligated as a Christian to disassociate myself? And my answer is yes. This is where the rubber really meets the road, and that's where people begin to make conscious, concrete decisions about leaving one denomination, leaving one congregation, and going to another. Now, when you call people to leave, you're not calling people out of a vacuum You've gone through it. Right, and I feel like I I have effectively cut off some relationships with people just simply because of my decision. And I want people to know that if they were to leave a mainline denomination and go to one of what you call the sideline denominations, they're not going to find a perfect church, but they are going to find a church that will be faithful to preaching the gospel in and out every Sunday, and also that they will be, to the very best, faithful to those confessions And uh, there is an extremely beautiful thing that happens when you can be with people of like mind, and uh, there's a sweet fellowship, and there's an encouragement of your spirit uh, as you follow and you hear the gospel preached each and every Lord's Day. Let's close with this and see if you can answer this. Years ago, a friend of mine had left the OPC, and he went to the PCUSA, and when I asked him about it, he said, listen, even in the Old Covenant, God sent prophets to the northern tribes. I would say, again, it comes down to what what is it that uh, you want as as a person to hear each and every Sunday and to be a part of? Do you want to be a part of hearing the gospel preached to you and to your family and to receive the sacraments in an appropriate way? Certainly there were prophets that were sent, but God sent them specifically. And what happened to those prophets, by the way? Well, by and large, they were rejected. Well, exactly. I think reality says that liberal denominations move to even greater liberalism. They do not move to conservatism, and it just doesn't happen. That's sadly the way it is. And when God's Spirit cannot reside with the people, He departs from that group of people or that denomination. And so God will call people however He will call them through His Word. He will do it. It's not necessarily our responsibility to save the church. It's Christ's responsibility to do that. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.